welcome to the February edition of the 2019 JNMP podcast. My name is Elizabeth Hyten and I'm the JNMP podcast editor. This month we're discussing the editor's choice, which is about cognitive and behavioural changes in motor neuron disease. I'm joined by Dr. Michael Van S from the Department of Neurology at the Brain Centre Rudolf Magnus, University Medical Centre Utrecht in the Netherlands. So Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Obviously, the topic of this particular podcast is cognitive and behavioural changes in MND. I wondered if, for the benefit of the listeners, we could just start off by explaining, you know, the exact different types of motor neuron disease and um, sort of how behavioural and cognitive changes can manifest in these. So motor neuron diseases are a a group of disorders which predominantly affect the motor neurons, uh, which are located in the brain and spinal cord. So patients who have these conditions develop progressive weakness and or spasticity leading to severe disability. Now, depending on which motor neurons are affected, the the sort of the definition of the disease changes. So probably the most well-known motor neuron disease is ALS, in which both neurons in the brain and spinal cord are affected, so upper and lower motor neurons. But there are some other forms of motor neuron disease, which are probably less common, maybe less well-known, therefore, which are primary lateral sclerosis, in which only upper motor neurons appear to be affected, and then PMA, or progressive spinal muscular atrophy, in which only lower motor neurons are affected. Sort of over the last decade, it has become very evident that ALS is linked to frontotemporal dementia, uh, which is a type of dementia not necessarily characterized by loss of memory, but more by changes in behavior and language. So if you carefully look at ALS patients, you'll find that up to 50% of patients have some signs of frontotemporal dementia without meeting the formal diagnostic criteria, and vice versa. So FDD patients will show slight signs of motor neuron impairment, and some patients have both. So your study specifically is looking at these different uh, motor neuron disease phenotypes and looking at the sort of cognitive and behavioural changes seen in them. What specifically, though, did your study seek to address? What gap in the literature? So PMA and PLS have been defined as restricted phenotypes of ALS or as separate diseases. So there's this perhaps ongoing discussion which has been going on for maybe more than a century, whether PLS and PMA are in fact forms of ALS or whether they are different diseases. And whether they are considered the same disease or something different, they are considered to be diseases that really specifically only target a a group of neurons, so only upper or only lower motor neurons. Now, sort of just from clinical observation, we came across a few patients with Um, who had PLS and seemed to also have developed FTD and also PMA patients with signs of FTD. So we were wondering, is this sort of a a coincidence or is this something you will see more often in PLS and PMA patients if you study them more carefully? The idea being that if we find cognitive and behavioral changes in PLS and PMA patients, sort of this concept of PLS and PMA as restricted phenotypes, which only affect a specific population of neurons, is no longer valid. 
So specifically turning um, your attention to obviously PMA and PLS, you studied the cognitive and behavioural changes seen in these particular phenotypes. So what were your major findings? So much to our surprise, we actually found that frontal temporal dementia, but also changes within the spectrum of FTD occur in PLS and PMA patients at quite comparable frequencies to ALS patients. So it appears that at the same frequency and with the same pattern of cognitive impairment, you find this in PMA and PLS as well. So sort of making the case that if the degree of cognitive impairment and the pattern or the profile of cognitive impairment is the same in these disorders as it is in ALS, it stands to reason to consider PLS and PMA as types of ALS, but not restricted phenotypes. Which sort of brings me on to my next question, which really was having read your paper and read the findings of it, obviously seeing that you have these sort of central changes in PLS and PMA, it does appear to sort of really affect these current conceptions of them, particularly as them separate diseases to ALS, doesn't it? I think that's that's sort of the main conclusion we, we reached in our in our paper. And I think it also has some implications for the way we think about these diseases, also from a pathophysiological point of view. So there's been a lot of literature on prion-like spreading so that these, these protein aggregates of TDP43, they spread throughout uh, the nervous system. So if in PMA, for instance, this starts in lower motor neurons, but there's also cognitive and behavioral impairment, uh, and that is through prion-like spreading, it, it stands to reason that also the upper motor neuron would be affected in, in PMA as well, but it's maybe just subclinical. So it has wide-reaching implications, your findings. I wondered how it might alter or at least assist with diagnostic processes now in the clinic, if, if you're looking for more than just, say, upper or lower motor neuron change. Yeah, so I think any patient you suspect of having either PMA or PLS should also undergo a cognitive and behavioral assessment. Obviously, the management of a patient who has these types of changes differs if it is present. Um, but I think it also helps you distinguish from, in, in particular in PMA, from some other neuromuscular diseases that may mimic PMA. So, for instance, uh, in a condition like uh, multifocal motor neuropathy, you're, you wouldn't expect to see cognitive changes. So I think it, it can really change your differential diagnosis and actually narrow it if you find cognitive and behavioral changes. Certainly speaks to the importance of sort of multidisciplinary approach when assessing patients in the clinic and, and paying focus to those cognitive changes. I wondered then, you mentioned briefly um, that it might obviously alters their management if they do have um, cognitive and behavioral impairment. And I wondered what other sort of implications it may have for treatment. And in particular, your paper does touch upon the idea of clinical trial selection, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah, so because there is this ongoing debate on whether the PLS, PMA are forms or types of ALS, they generally tend to be excluded from ALS clinical trials. So probably most investigators don't want to run the risk that they're including more than one disease in their clinical trial. So if, as we add more evidence to the point that PLS and PMA are in fact types of ALS, you could argue that they should also or could also be included in clinical trials. And even if you don't want to include them in clinical trials, 
it does seem reasonable to prescribe any effective drug in ALS to patients with PLS or PMA. So even if they, if you can't enroll them in trials, I guess the outcomes of, of any positive trials could also benefit these patients. It definitely has extremely wide-reaching implications for patients in the MND clinics. Um, Michael, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. My pleasure. So that was Dr. Michael Van S, who is from the Department of Neurology, the Brain Centre Rudolf Magnus, University Medical Centre in Utrecht in the Netherlands. And we were discussing the Editor's Choice paper for the February 2019 edition of the JNMP. You can download the paper for free on jnmp.bmj.com. And we thank you all for listening.